Well, this morning we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, As I mentioned, I could not make a floating axe head story work for Easter, so I paused last week, but we're right back into it this week. You know, it's funny, the more time I spent, I thought, I could make this work for resurrection. This could have been a possibility. But I gave you what you give the people what they want. I gave you an Easter sermon, so now we're back to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6, we're just going to be reading the beginning portion of the passage. Uh, We've been looking for, uh, I've been looking forward to this passage, even though it is a little bit of a strange one, if you're familiar with the story. We're in a section of 2 Kings in which we've been looking at these miracles that Elisha has been at the center of. There's been a, a series of them, a list of these miracles. And when we come to this one, it's really the last in this grouping of miracles before we move back in to some of the issues related to the kings and the kingdoms of Israel to the north and Judah to the south. 2 Kings opens in the context of these major political events, kings and nations, the possibility of war, But quickly, even though we're in the midst of kings and invading armies, we get these individuals, Elijah and Elisha, and then deeper in the middle of that context, these common everyday needs. A woman who was barren, sons about to be sold into slavery because of their poverty, prophets poisoned by bad stew, and today an axe head that comes off of an axe and sinks to the bottom of the Jordan River. How strange it is in this context of kings, after all that's the name of the book, wars and nations, to find the Bible giving its time to these common situations, these common lives in the midst of it. And that's certainly what we find, maybe even as you read it yourselves wondering, how in the world did this story make it into the Bible? A broken axe, a miracle from Elisha, but yet here it is. So as I said, not a long passage, 2 Kings chapter 6, I'm going to read the story, just seven verses, verse 1 through 7. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Please be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. That's the whole story. This is what I get to work with on Monday morning. All right, let's look at the passage for this week. It actually got me, uh, I'm glad Trent's here today too, because this story immediately makes me think about, Trent and I were one time overnight kayaking on the 11 Point River. Uh, So we had all of our gear with us. It was a, a wonderful day to set out. We came around a bend in the the river where it narrowed and there was a log down and as the water sort of sped up and pushed us over into it, we both ended up rolling our kayaks, me first, him right behind me. And I remember as I went in the water trying to throw myself over the opening of the kayak because we had all of our gear for overnighting inside, including my shoes that weren't on. Uh, So trying to keep all of this gear with us. And as I came back up with the kayak, holding kind of onto it on top of it, I realized I'd managed, I thought, to keep everything in. So I put my feet down to stop and slow us down. was going much faster than I realized and broke one of my toes when it hit the bottom. Eventually managed to get the kayak, Trent and I both, over to the bank where we could sort of dump the water and sort out. Luckily, everything was in dry bags. And as I realized everything was there, uh, Trent had lost a fishing pole and a shirt, which made for an awkward night of camping as he had only one shirt with him for the night. 
But I was proud. Everything I needed was here until I looked down and realized my wedding ring was no longer on my finger. Apparently, I never take it off nor thought to take it off. And when I hit the cold water, my finger must have shrunk and off came the ring, which meant Trent and I spent the next three hours with our faces in the water trying to search for a ring that we had absolutely no chance of ever finding. But I could not let myself let it go so easily. Eventually, as night began to set, we decided we had to push on and make camp, and I, with my broken toe and him shirtless and my lost wedding ring, suffered through a storm that hit and then found his dad's truck had been backed into in the parking lot. It was a disaster all the way around. And to replace it, Ashley bought me a $45 wedding ring from Walmart, which I will probably have for the rest of my life and never lose. I never thought about cutting a stick off and throwing it in and seeing if the ring would float. Uh, where's Elisha when you need him? So the ring is still somewhere at the bottom of the 11 point, but it's not too unlike what happens in this story. The man loses a valuable possession. He panics, but Elisha is there who takes a stick, throws it into the water, and suddenly the iron floats, the axe head floats to the surface. So what do you do with a strange passage like this? That's the reason you all sort of chuckled when I got done reading it is, what in the world do we do with this? What does this mean for me? Uh, Barry and I have joked a couple times this week talking about the passage, all of the strange ways we've heard this passage preached, the allegories we've heard, which is one of the common ways you look for the hidden meanings, the symbols of the objects, things like the axe head represents the weight of human sin, and the stick thrown in represents the cross, and the floating represents the forgiveness of sin and resurrection. Uh, Certainly some of you have heard sermons like this preached with these strange passages that we're not sure what else to do with them. I want to be a little bit careful about joking because there are certainly passages that have deeper meanings, but I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. I don't think there's some sort of secret symbolism that you're supposed to work out. Maybe one of the reasons so many of us as preachers have turned to this kind of allegorizing the passage is because in the end, it's so simple, so everyday, so much like our lives, we struggle to wonder how something like this could be set alongside invading armies and kings and kingdoms, prophets of God. After all, who amongst us hasn't lost something, hasn't found something broken that was valuable, hasn't panicked when they can't fix it or find it? And really, that's all Elisha does in this story, fixes something that was broken, sets them back to work puts them back into the thing they had set out to do. I don't think it's an allegory, the point of this passage, but I do think there's something more going on here than just Elisha fixing a broken thing or returning a lost thing. The story opens with a group of prophets who are complaining about the conditions of their current home. These prophets are serving together. We've talked about them before in 2 Kings. They're probably understudies or pupils of Elisha. They've probably been tasked with adjudicating lesser cases or answering religious questions. But they're certainly a group of prophets who have dedicated themselves to working under the great prophet Elijah. And they specifically say that here, that they're under his charge, under his care. Apparently, they're now unhappy with the conditions that he's provided. This place that they're living together under his charge is too small, too cramped for the whole group of them. So they come up with a solution. They should move their dwelling place down along the Jordan River where they could cut down trees and construct a larger place for them to live. That sounds pretty logical and straightforward. You probably read over that portion of the passage without thinking much about it. But there is a kind of ambiguity in what moves them, sets them out on this plan. 
Notice that they specifically point out that they are under Elisha's care and that this cramped house is the place they dwell under his charge. It sounds a little bit like a renter complaining to a landlord. You know, this place could use some upgrades at some point. It's getting, it's getting a little run down in here. That seems to be their complaint. This place you've provided for us, Elisha, is getting a little cramped, but we've got an idea, a plan. It's also interesting that Elisha simply responds by saying, go. There's certainly a kind of ambiguity even in his answer. If you've been with us as we preach through 2 Kings, you realize how often people have misunderstood Elisha's words, assuming that the prophet was on their side when there was a kind of ambiguity to his response. And you can't help wondering if this is one of those moments. Is Elisha saying, go because he supports them? Is he saying, go, if you want something better, have at it? Is he saying, go, you're about to learn a lesson? Now you're not quite sure what his view on this project is. But he agrees to go along with them, at least, and is certainly there for the story. There's a recurring question that comes up throughout 2 Kings about where a prophet should live or be. If you remember back, the kings were constantly wanting the prophets to come to them. One of the first stories of the book is Ahaziah, who demands that Elijah come to him. And as Elijah continues to refuse, Ahaziah becomes more and more emboldened, sending groups of soldier after groups of soldier to demand that Elijah come to him. Or think about that coalition of kings we looked at a few weeks ago. They draw Elisha to their camp. Already on the march, already set out for war, they demand that Elisha come to them and give them a prophecy. There's also uh, another kind of question here. These prophets may be wanting to go to the Jordan because the trees and lumber make it an ideal place to build. They could cut it down and build right there. But it may also be that the Jordan has a kind of spiritual image to it, a retreat-type atmosphere. Elijah had crossed the Jordan before he ascended to heaven, and Elisha came back across the Jordan to signal the beginning of his ministry. The Jordan had been the place just a couple chapters before that Naaman was sent to be cleansed and healed of his leprosy. And so what these prophets may be looking for is a kind of place of retreat, a place of spiritual peace outside of the cities, the Jordan River, this image of where God had worked before. It's cramped in their current place. They're probably surrounded by constantly needy people, the demands of kings and the poor, Why not build a nicer place on the banks of the Jordan with its green foliage and its running water, a place where they could be truly spiritual? What's also interesting, though, is that this isn't the first time this question of housing for the prophets has been at the center of a story. You remember a couple of chapters ago when this rich barren woman had built on an additional room to her house to allow Elisha a place to stay when he was passing by. For her generosity, God showed her the kindness of giving her a son. This question of providing a place for the prophet to stay in that story led to the blessing, this woman generously giving that place to Elisha. How can you not compare that event, the goodness of it, the life received from it, to now this place where the prophets themselves decide instead of receiving, they should go out and build, construct, plan, an image of a better place and a better dwelling in the midst of it. So apparently they set out, and a part of that plan is a particular tool that they borrow, an axe, this tool they'll use to cut down lumber and build this place for themselves. 
This probably isn't strictly a condemnation of their motives, as if somehow to go and build a better place is a sin or disobedience to God. But there is something certainly going on here, some ambiguity that raises the question, is what they've set out to do a good thing? Is it a thing Elisha is behind, a thing God is behind? Quickly, as the story progresses fast, they find themselves along the bank, busy with their construction, dropping trees, building this bigger place to live, all of this motion and building until suddenly, with one swing, the head of the axe comes off and drops into the Jordan River. If you've ever worked with an axe, that's not that uncommon of a thing to happen. The wedge in the end that worked its way loose and the With the swing, the momentum, the head of the axe went flying off of it, and as it did, it sank into the river. For us, that would be a kind of annoyance, maybe even dangerous, but after all, you would run to Lowe's or Home Depot and pick up another one. Here, this servant says, alas. What he's really saying is, oh no. That's probably the better translation in Hebrew. It's a cry of panic. Oh no, that was borrowed, is the thing that he says he begins to realize how desperate this situation is. To us, that may feel a little melodramatic. You broke a tool that you had borrowed from somebody, and now you're crying out in panic, oh no. But in the ancient world, this is actually a pretty big deal. The story we read takes place in what is known as the Iron Age. That Iron Age transition happens from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, sometime around the rule of David into Solomon, so just before these stories. That may not seem like a a big point, like a kind of academic footnote, but this transition from bronze to iron is actually a significant part of the biblical story. If you'll remember back to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, one of the big narratives taking place is the lack of access to iron that the Israelites had compared to the Philistines in their advanced technology-driven culture, having produced this new metal that was so superior. So you'll remember stories like when uh, Jonathan and Saul set out to fight the Philistines, we read in 1 Samuel that there were only two swords amongst them. Well, they probably had swords. What it's getting at is there were only two iron swords. There were only two of these real swords, while the rest of them had the antiquated technology of bronze to try and fight with. It's a big deal because we even mark time and the passage of time by the development of these, the Bronze Age into the Iron Age. Iron was so valuable that a part of the Philistine strategy for oppressing Israel was to keep Israel from acquiring it or acquiring the knowledge to make it themselves. They were so good at controlling this new technology of iron that the Israelites had to go down to the Philistines anytime they wanted to purchase a tool or even to have that tool repaired, worked on, or sharpened. We read in 1 Samuel 13, Now there was no smith, blacksmith, to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines had said, The Hebrews must not make swords or spears for themselves. So all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshares, their mattocks, their axes, or sickles. Now that passage is really clear. And it's also clear in our story that this axe head that falls off, I actually like the way that it does this. It holds this bit of information until the end. We read simply that the head of the axe comes off, but then as it begins to float, we read specifically the iron axe head began to float. The reason this man panics over a broken tool is that it is probably an extremely expensive tool for an Israelite to have, so expensive that they certainly didn't have their own but would have borrowed it from someone who did. 
Maybe the only reason they were even allowed to borrow it was the fact that they were prophets and somebody was trying to be generous to God's men and let them borrow the expensive tool. Now they realize they've lost it, broken it and lost it. It's hard to find a correlation in our own day to put this into context, but maybe it would be something like you renting a giant expensive crane and then flipping the thing over and breaking it without insurance and realizing this wasn't just a mistake that would cause a problem for the day, that this mistake would probably financially set you back for years, if not your life, and maybe to some degree could never be fully replaced. Certainly what the prophet first feels is the financial loss, but along with it the kind of humiliation and shame for having lost something, broken something so valuable that it had been gifted to him that he had borrowed. But I think there's also something deeper going on. All of a sudden, their entire project comes to a stop. No one cutting, nobody building. Everybody lays down the work they were doing and turns and looks at Elisha. Suddenly, their whole plan and project is in jeopardy. And suddenly, all of them stand looking at Elisha for what to do next. Their plan had failed. Perhaps Elisha's ambiguity or even his reluctance to go along with this had been because of this confidence they had in their own way, their own plan. They had a problem that they had identified. They had a plan for how they would go about solving that problem. They had acquired the tools that they would need to do it themselves. But now that tool and the plan along with it was lost. Where did they turn but to this man of God in their midst? What did they do next? It may sound a little bit strange to refer to an axe as technology, but I think that's an important part of what's going on here. This idea of technology, you may think of wires and code and Amazon eavesdropping through your phone to market you products, but the definition of technology is simply the application of scientific knowledge for practical purposes. The application of knowledge for something practical. That's exactly what's going on with this tool. Knowledge, scientific knowledge, this breakthrough of innovative technology, how to make iron, a metal unlike anything the world had seen before, now put in the context of an axe, the most advanced technology of the Philistines in this tool that allowed men to do things they had never been able to do in the same way before, to build a new place, to cut down better and bigger trees. Knowledge we possess, applied for practical purposes, to make our own lives better. That's this idea of the axe being technology. After all, historians have long traced technological breakthroughs by these very things. The Stone Age, the little stone tools that we piece together, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the Age of Steel. We still think of history in terms of rail and automobile and flight and space travel. Certainly, there was the age of print and perhaps our own, the age of information, technology, the internet. What we're really marking is this idea of progress, the idea that we have figured something out and by that advancement in human knowledge made something never before possible, possible. That we, by this new technology, have some means of doing something for ourselves that before we never had the means of doing the builders of Babel all the way back in Genesis, who had their own innovation and industry, believed that for them nothing was out of reach, nothing was impossible by what they built, by what they innovated. 
One of my favorite authors, Neil Postman, um, I've quoted him to you before, but he has another book called Technopoly, and he says this about technology. Technologies create the ways in which people perceive reality, and that such ways are the key to understanding their forms of social and mental life. In other words, technology impacts the, what we think is possible, how we interact with the world around us and one another, the way we plan and think about our own future, what we would like to have and where we would like to go. All of those possibilities are made real because of the tools, the stuff we have to put into practice to get the things we want. Technology has a huge impact on how we think about reality, what is possible and what are the limits. I know you probably haven't thought about this passage as a passage about technology. Uh, Like I said, I was not going the allegory route, but going a slightly different place. But I think that's actually what this story is very much about. It's a story about how easy it is to think of life as what we want and about the tools we possess to make that life happen for ourselves. It's about how our own technology, our own means and knowledge gives us confidence to set out and do things, about how we figure things out for ourselves and work whatever advantage we have to build the things we want for our life. That is, all of this confidence and progress and innovation until it doesn't work, until it breaks, until the technology falls off and sinks to the bottom and we're left standing around wondering what to do next. When it does, we're often left saying the same thing, oh no. Suddenly, we're left standing there staring at God, a man of God, Elisha in this case, wondering what happened. Technology gives us so many good things. I'm certainly not against it. I mean, who isn't grateful for modern medicine, for the buildings that we have, for air conditioning as summer comes on, and cars that take us to places, planes, God is certainly not the God hostile or against technology. But there's no disputing that our advancements in technology often leave us thinking that our own human potential is limitless, that we can do and have whatever we would want. We may not be there yet, but certainly this progress of technology makes all things possible for us too. That is, until it breaks, until it's lost, until moments of war until our technology poisons us with anxiety and depression, until it leads us into conflict and anger and division. The story of the Tower of Babel is not just about how God once judged human progress. It's about how all attempts of human progress eventually fail, eventually lead us into shattered relationships, eventually leave us short of the thing that inspired us. This story is about how even God's own prophets can get caught up in it, thinking that they can build the life they want for themselves if they just have the right tool to do it. Who needs a kind old woman to build you a spare bedroom when you're passing by, when you've got tools like this to build that better place for yourself the way you want it, the way you would have it? Who needs to receive, after all? You can get the tool and do it yourself. So all of it comes to a grinding halt when that tool is lost. It's interesting, though, that this is not just a judgment against human progress. Some think that's the way forward, right? To refuse any advancement, to refuse any technology. The old ways are always the good ways. 
until you realize that even in the old days in the Iron Age, they were still doing the same things we do, making the same mistakes and trusting the same things. But at the end of this story, Elisha does give them back their tool. He doesn't say, shame on you for trusting in these things. He gives them back the technology they were using. Isn't it interesting that that's how the story ends? What we don't know is what they did next. Did they finish the project? Did they stick the axe head back on the end of the handle and go back at it? Did they return the axe safely to its owner and call the whole thing off? We don't know because that isn't the point of this story. And hopefully you're starting to get it. This project isn't the point. The progress, the tool isn't the point. Receiving the axe head back is not the point. What they certainly gained in that moment was the realization that there are things that God can do that their own technology and plans and purposes cannot. By this miracle, the story shifts from a pragmatic construction project to a miracle that leaves them marveling, floating iron. How does that work? There's nothing in their knowledge, their innovation, their technology that makes sense out of this. And so the ones who up until this point, as you notice in the story, have not consulted God or been all that interested, who are motivated by their own plan and the tools they possess, finally find themselves changed, marveling at what God could do that they could not. So many people struggle with this tension between knowledge, science, and religion. But the question is not, how does this thing work? The question of life itself is not, how do we know more so that we can do more? Certainly those questions matter and are valuable. But there's always a deeper question, a deeper question that leads us to a place of wonder. This doesn't work, but yet somehow here it is. Do you remember those stories of Thomas Jefferson, who famously went through the Bible and cut out any miracle? He was determined to make it a realistic, what he knew from scientific knowledge, understanding of Jesus. And so he retitled his work, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. He tried to remove anything from the Bible that he couldn't verify as scientifically credible. So what do you end up with? Well, I think the title says it, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. You end up with a man that has a moral teaching, what Jefferson saw Jesus to be, a tool, a teacher, who can teach me to do better personal moral work within my life. You end up with a man and a technology, knowledge, that helps you be a better person. But that's certainly not what Jesus is when you read the Gospels. People often think of religion that way too. That somehow, if I follow God, he'll give me some tools that I need for living a better life. Certainly people listen to sermons that way. We'll go to church and get some helpful applicational information, a tool that I could leverage to make my life go better in the days ahead. How many people view God himself that way? As something you could use, a guide for getting more out of life, an angle that you could work for making your life go better. But God nor Jesus, if you read their stories correctly, give you more control over your life. Instead, they give us what those prophets also received, something lost, something restored, and a moment of realizing that this God, this prophet, this savior, can do things which this world cannot. They give you the same experience of the prophets, wonder, 
marvel, a miracle, a reversal of what we know things to be and how things are supposed to work. And suddenly, in the midst of this God, those things are changed. If you stop and think about it, isn't that what so much of Second Kings has actually been about? Kings and all of their power and authority who are shown to be unwise and inept and foolish. The poor who end up being provided for in a kind of abundance that no one could imagine. Life coming to the woman who had been long barren. Water purified for a town. Poisonous stew made good again. An axe floating when lost. All things reversed from what knowledge and human innovation tells us to something that leaves us now in a position not of control but of wonder, the miraculous. In the New Testament, many people saw the work that Jesus was doing and they thought this was the return of Elijah, someone like Elisha. They saw the works he was doing and recognized in them the kinds of reversals that Elijah and Elisha were working Luke records the uh, command in his gospel, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. In other words, the way he summarizes Jesus's ministry is a reversal of all things. Jesus is like Elisha in that way. He comes to work these miracles so that we might see that with him, Things that are, are not. And the things that are not, suddenly are. To make things happen which we, by our knowledge, say aren't supposed to happen. But it isn't just these physical things. One of the great Old Testament commentators, Walter Brueggemann, wrote this in his commentary. God's power invades the world of the ordinary to effect strange reversals. The lowly are raised to places of honor. The unrighteous are justified, the lost are found, the dead are raised. These are as much incredible reversals as is iron that floats. These physical miracles, the ones we read about in 2 Kings or the ones Jesus works in his day, the ones that our Bible are filled with, physical realities changed by God's miraculous power, They're there to open our eyes to even greater miracles, that we ourselves are changed, that our hearts are changed, that reconciliation with God is real, that salvation is ours by mercy. The God who can reverse the sinking of an iron can reverse the sinking of the human heart. Just a little allegory to make that point. Brueggemann ultimately concluded about the passage, it is, I suggest, the work of the church to invite folk into the narratives of wonder as an act of resistance against the world of technology that wants to reduce all possibility to human explanation and human control. That may seem small, but I do think that's a big part of what we do when we come together and read these stories on Sundays. We remind ourselves that what the world shows us, what we see, what it, by its desperation for control and knowledge, offers is not the only thing happening around us. It's what I want you to see from this passage this morning as well. God is not against technology. He's not against progress. He's not against innovation. God, by his wisdom, hopefully pours it into great scientists and great inventors. Here's the axe head back. Have at it, Elisha says. But don't mistake the lesson of this story. 
Human progress is not the real progress. The progress that matters most is not something we control, not something we invent, not something we progress by our own power, our own ingenuity. The progress that really matters comes by grace, comes as a miracle, comes leaving us standing on the bank marveling at what God has given us, given us even as we were busy in our own way, in our own plans. All that you can really learn to do is stand back and watch for it, to recognize it, to marvel at it, to let it move you into a position of worship, which is a position of receiving, which I want to suggest to you is the core lesson Elisha wanted those prophets to learn, that though we may have the tools, some things are better received than built. Some things are better received than dreamed, imagined, and strived after. Some things can only be received that can never be made. The grace The mercy, the reconciliation, the salvation, the resurrection of life itself, the hope of an eternal future, an identity established with Christ, are not things we hack together, not things we innovate and make, not things we secure or tie down or build, nail to the wall. They are things we open our hearts and receive. We bow our knee and humble ourselves and find there. And we stand again to marvel at them and to worship the God who does it by his grace and his mercy. Let's pray this morning and then we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning that we are in a world very much like the one we read about. That God, we are bombarded day in and day out by new tools, by new technology, by new promises and marketing pitches. And God, maybe never before have a group of people had more means, more tools, more ways to build the lives we want. And God, I sense it in my own heart first and foremost, how easy it is to get this vision of life the way I want it, and to scheme and plot and save and plan and borrow and build whatever I can for myself. God, I sense this morning as well how easy it is for that work keep me from recognizing what you're doing, how easily I distract myself from the things of God, the miracles of God that are left in my life for me to marvel at, to sense you and to see you. So this morning, I repent. God, forgive me of the ways I obsess over my own life and miss what it is you're doing. And God, teach me Teach me like these prophets to be interrupted, to be stopped, to be halted, to lose those things that I've trusted too much in, and that by their loss, to see you again, to have my eyes and my attention shifted back to what you are giving, what I receive, what comes by grace and mercy alone. So this morning, we quiet ourselves, our hearts from the things we want things we're thinking about and working on and constructing, we humble ourselves again this morning and recognize that you know far better than we do, that our plans are often foolish, but you are a path that we can follow, a light before our feet, a narrow way, but a way that leads to life and life eternal. So God, show us, take what you need to take from us to help us see it. 
lead us into that place of marveling again at your grace and mercy, at your wisdom, at your knowledge, that you are a God who reverses things in a way this world can't comprehend, to the poor you give richness of life and hope, to the rich you leave desperate and still more hungry. God, to those meek they inherit the earth, and to those desperate for power and control they lose it. To those who clutch at their life comes only death, but to those who are willing to lay down their life, you give life eternal. And may we be counted with those who do, who lay it down to receive the better things that you have in store, God. Make us a people who see your miracles and marvel at them. So we worship you this morning. You know, I can't help but wonder if... uh, We live in a time where I don't know if any group of people around us, not just us, but any time where people have had more tools than we have to build the life we want, to imagine we're in control, to think that we're making progress. And I can't help sometimes if God doesn't allow us to lose some of it, to turn our attention back to him. That maybe sometimes we don't see the miracles we would like because God knows that in our building our own way and using whatever we can get our hands on, We're not really looking for him. We're not really looking for his grace, for his mercy. I was really struck even as we were praying and thinking, it wasn't in my sermon, but these prophets ask Elisha to go along. (laughs) Hey, we've got this plan, this thing we're doing. We know you're a man of God. Why don't you come with us? And I couldn't help but wonder if we don't do that with God ourselves. I've got a plan, a life, the tools. I know where I'm going and what I'm doing. And hey, God, go along with me. Like you're important to me too, right? I want you here. But how much that changes when they lose the thing they had trusted and finally they're shifted back into that position. All of their eyes on Elisha, God's voice, God's prophet to them. Their tools set down, their work stopped for a moment. Um, Just my own conviction, I don't want to lose that in my life. Don't let me get so busy. Don't let me get so many tools in my hands and so many projects and goals. Um, Bringing God along. Um, Give me some moments to just stop, turn to him, lay down my busyness and just say, God, let me see the way that you change things. Let me see the work that you're doing that I could never do. Let me see how your miracles not help me get what I'm after. Let me just see the way that your kingdom is coming, that your spirit and presence changed what this world is telling me matters and values. And God, if you do it by making an ax head float, <laughs> if you do it by restoring a relationship that was broken, if you heal somebody that I've been praying for, or if you just change my heart, All of those are the kinds of miracles that I know on my own I can't do. God, give me just the patience and the interest, the stillness and the quietness to see you do it. That's my prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to see you move. We want to see your spirit move. Not just on us, but on this nation and around this world. God, not just miracles so we can boast or brag or celebrate, but miracles so that we can be reminded again that you are real that you are bigger than this world, than its brokenness, that your kingdom is coming, that you are wiping away every tear and making all things new, that you are restoring things that have been lost. And that God, by the power of your gospel and your spirit, that's happening all around me, that your kingdom is here. So I pray, God, that even this week, you would just quiet our hearts and our desperations and our desires, that we might set down some of these tools we've been working so hard And that you, by your spirit, would just give us new eyes to see and new ears to hear, to 
recognize the way in which your gospel is going forward, the way in which your kingdom is present now, the way in which you are changing and redeeming and restoring things now. That we would be those who see it, who recognize it, and who bring our lives into alignment with it, God. So we trust you to do it. You said you would. You promised you would. And even here, God, you do it through a crazy story and strange everyday problems that it might be true in our own lives, our own problems, our own losses, that we would again be reminded that you are a God of miracles. You are a way-making God. So we leave here trusting you. Open eyes, and open hearts, ready to receive from you again. By your grace and by your mercy, show us your glory again. Pour your spirit out on us again. Do miracles in our midst again. God, wake us up to the reality of your kingdom once again. Let your gospel be alive and burning in our hearts again. God, be resurrected. Be a living hope within us again. We worship you for it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Leave you like I do every week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance to you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.